This podcast episode is brought to you by Derm Health Co., Australia's only skin health platform with over 700 qualified practitioners, treatment providers, and support groups. Derm Health Co. exists to provide education, community, and treatment options to support the health of skin following trauma, disease, or injury. We serve the patient, the carer, and the practitioner through unique solutions tailored to every single step of the skin health journey, from discovery and first diagnosis to treatment options, community support networks, through to providing a source of referrals for practitioners. Visit us at www.dermhealth.co. Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to episode number 37 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Naveen Somia, president of the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. You may recall hearing from Dr. Somia when we covered lipedema and the lymphatic system um, earlier on in our episodes in 2019, and we invited Dr. Somia back onto the show to talk about something that he is very, very experienced in, and that's aesthetic surgery. And we are going to be covering aging of the face from a plastic surgeon's perspective, which I just find absolutely fascinating. And he's also going to share some tips on aging well, no matter how old you are. Dr. Somia is a published author of several scientific papers in plastic surgery, and he was awarded a PhD PhD for his three-year research into eyelid reanimation using implantable microelectrodes and the study of eyelid movements. He is one of few Australian plastic surgeons that provides treatment and management strategies for patients with lipedema, and he practices from Sydney, Australia, with frequent national and international travel as he takes an active interest in the teaching, training, and mentoring of Australia's future plastic surgeons, as well as keeping abreast of new advances in science and technology. His role as the president of the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery focuses on patient safety and best practice. I started by asking Dr. Somia what he thought was the biggest misconception about aesthetic surgery. The biggest misconception about aesthetic surgery is people feel that it is trivial usually for vanity and of no greater significance. But the answer is not correct. It is something of very significant value. It is life-changing to a lot of people. And technologically, it has come a long way over the last 25, 30 years to deliver what we call right now is a state-of-the-art product to achieve your aesthetic goals. Yes, really good point. Now, today, what we're going to be talking about is facial aging. So from a perspective of a plastic surgeon, what is facial aging? 
Facial aging is basically the natural biological processes that occur with your tissues on the face as you age. Now, if you want to simplify that, the best way to look at the face is to look at it as three layers. The first layer, which forms the foundation of the face, is your bone, which is the skeleton of your face. Then you have your fat and the muscles and your ligaments, followed by the skin. To keep it simple, if you look at the face as a triple layer structure, you have independent aging of each of the structures that are inherently happening because of your genetic makeup, what you're made up of, whether you have outstanding the good genes or not so good genes, so on and so forth. Then you have the environmental related issues that influence the appearance of mainly the skin and to some degree the fat that influence your overall appearance. So the appearance that you see on someone's face is a combination of the bony or the skeletal aging as we call it and also the cutaneous or the skin aging that is a result of primarily environmental issues. So, for example, yes. if you have somebody who's got a habit of being in the sun for a very long time and cumulatively over the many years has spent a lot of time in the sun and also is being a smoker, then that person's skin would look a lot different than, say, someone who's been very careful with sun exposure as well as a non-smoker. And what happens to these three layers as we age? Because I think there's a bit of a misconception that when we have volume loss, that we think that it's just that top layer, but it's actually happening right down at the bone. That's correct. The bone is what triggers off aging and that is predetermined. In other words, when people say that I know whose son you are, I know whose daughter you are, you've got your father's eyes, you've got your mother's jaw, that kind of stuff, then what is interesting is to understand that the bone is the one that triggers off your aging. Now, face transplant is accepted procedure now where you take a transplant of the soft tissue from one person and put it onto the face of the other person who has been damaged with significant burns, scarring or other issues, a gunshot wounds as well. Now, before they started doing the face transplants, they had to do some research to identify the fundamental question whether the face would look like the donor or would the face look like the recipient? So let's say, for example, I took the soft tissue skin and the fat of your face and put it on my face. Would I look like Barney or would I look like Naveen? So that was the fundamental question that you had to ask. And if that was the answer was in the negative, then it would be a deal breaker. So my colleagues did some research and they did research in the lab. And this was when I was in the US. They took, peeled off the soft tissues of multiple cadaver heads and they interchanged them across the, over the skeletal remnants of the facial skeleton. And what they found was the face looked more like the native skeleton, not that of the donor. Interesting. Okay. So that, that was what uh, answered that simple, but important question that your bone would then influence the way you look. With that preamble, you start noticing aging changes primarily around two aspects of your face, around the eyes and around your mouth. That's kind of where your aging occurs. And what the very specific changes around your eye socket that influence the appearance of your eyes. So you start looking at your eyebrows coming down. You look at your eye bags getting more prominent. The skin becomes loose and lax. You've got some dark circles coming around. And you also start having cheeks that were once full and now kind of droopy and dragging. That starts around the age of 
around 40, 45. And as you get older, it gets worse, obviously. But it also kicks in at a later age, aging around your mouth and around your jawline. So you start noticing chin that used to be very strong and prominent is now no longer prominent. You start noticing those jowl or these pre-jowl sulcuses, uh, corner of the mouth. The corners of the mouth tend to come down because there is a muscle that is connecting to the jawbone and to the corner of the mouth. So naturally, when the jawbone comes down, it pulls on the muscle and the muscle pulls on the corner of the mouth. And then that corresponds to the fact that your skin of the face and the cheek is not supported because the bone is caving in. And that corresponds with the time that you put on some extra weight and the cheeks become heavier, that they tend to come down and give you the appearance of a jowly look, so to speak. The jawline also tends to go in. So if you look at your jaws, they tend to go inwards. As a result, that influences how your neck will look. So all of a sudden, you start looking at what you see, uh, what the public see, uh, changes in the skin. But what is actually triggering those changes in the skin are primarily bony changes that influence what the skin looks like. Now, if you had two identical twins, and one lived on the coast of Sydney, New South Wales, and one lived in somewhere in northern Europe where you don't see much sun, they would look identically as far as the bony aging goes. They would look like twin sisters, but the skin would look a lot different in someone who's been out in the sun, mainly three things. You see, you start seeing wrinkles, you start seeing redness and inflammation of the skin, and you start seeing uneven pigmentation. Each of those give the average layperson impression that you're five years older. So if you have wrinkles on your skin as opposed to no wrinkles on your skin, instantly the layperson says, oh, that's a bit older person. You add in some redness, that's another five-year tick. You add in uneven pigmentation, that's a five-year tick. So that's why we say that a combination of anti-aging strategy should target all aspects of aging as we know today. So yes. it involves uh, skin protection, skin nourishment, taking care of your skin to minimize wrinkles, uneven pigmentation and redness or inflammation. And also you restore the volume that you have lost with age. Now, what is important is in the early 40s, mid 40s, early 50s, volume loss is a predominant aging feature. So we call it as the theory of deflation. In other words, think of a balloon that is inflated. And when the balloon loses its air, it becomes deflated. That is your first aging change in your face. And that usually comes early. And a few years later, you start noticing the second theory, which is called the theory of descent. In other words, things sag. So you start looking at your jowl sagging, your neck sagging. So typically for a layperson, at 40, 45, you're predominantly aging features of volume loss-based aging, which are then superimposed by the skin aging. But if you look at somebody who's in the 65 or the 70 age group, you're looking at predominantly volume loss plus skin laxity or skin sagginess plus skin aging. So the strategies you're going to do to target these two problems are different. So at a younger age, replacement of volume Common options are fillers. Common options would be fat transfer, would be adequate to restore what is normal anatomy. In other words, anatomy that has been deranged. And then on top of that, if you look at a good range of skin care and maintenance skin therapy, then you have ticked your boxes. But if you use the same three modalities that you use for a 45-year-old person, for a 65-year-old person, you will not get visible results because the aging pattern has changed and the dominant aging feature is of skin sagging and skin laxity.
So that's when you need to think about tightening the skin. If it is small, you can tighten with non-surgical stuff. If it is more, then you need to resect skin to tighten it. So that's kind of the broad spectrum of how things age. Really interesting. And in terms of the most common treatments to reduce the appearance of aging, you've already mentioned a few, but what are some of the most common from least invasive to most invasive? The most common treatment would be skincare. That would by far be the most non-invasive one because all you have to do is to open a tube of cream or a bottle of serum and apply on your skin and you can do it at home. You don't need to have any extra expertise to do that. All you have to do is to have pick the right person who can advise you the right range or regime of uh, skincare. Now, skincare, we have kind of, to simplify skincare, you've got three grades of skincare. You've got the skincare that you can get in a popular department store or your local shop. Then you have prescription-grade skincare, which is mainly available through doctor's offices because the active ingredients are of a higher concentration, so they cannot be uh, sold in uh, non-medical facilities. And the third, which is exciting, is the new trend to have personalized skincare. In other words, you have active ingredients that have been shown to produce effect and target certain things. Say, for example, if you have redness, then the active ingredients that rectify that redness would be ingredient one, two, and three. So we recommend a solution of one, two, and three. And it this is bespoke. This is compounded for you based on the prescription given by your practitioner, which is directly related to your concerns. So it is very much bespoke and customized for your concern and for your skin. And that is something that is new that is, that's in the market now. And it is quite exciting because if you looked at a generic skincare, yes, your skin and my skin would get the same cream. Whereas if you looked at something that is bespoke, that would be structured according to your concerns, what you would get and what I would get would be different and hence the results would be different. Yes, and really fascinating because if we think about compounding pharmacy, where it first sprung from, Yeah formulations were bespoke, but I guess in much, much smaller quantities. So it is exciting to see this happening on kind of a full circle, but on a much larger and commercial scale as well. That's right. And I think that's kind of how we reap the benefit of technology, of material sciences, of products, of artificial learning, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and all those things put together will come up with a truly user-friendly solution that would give you results. And some of the perhaps more invasive treatments are stepping up from skincare. That's right. The best way to visualize facial rejuvenation is like a pyramid. So at the base of the pyramid are something that what we use as very basic stuff that you can do yourself. You don't need to involve a third party and you use good products. So basically, you know, basic skincare, we call it. It is what everyone does. It is you cleanse, you moisturize, you sunblock and the occasional facial exfoliation is okay. So this is basic skincare and you cannot get past that if you do it well. The next layer is to do what we call as advanced skincare. And this is where I just spoke about. You can use the medical grade cosmeceuticals, typically vitamins A, B and C in creams or serums to go onto your skin. Because what happens is as you get older, your skin is an organ. It's not a structure to cover your body, but it is an organ that is live. It you know, has to have immune functions, has to be a barrier to your body and so on and so forth. So just with aging of all of the organs and your ability to function and replenish your uh, nourishment, your skin too loses its nourishment and its ability to replenish it. So it relies on uh, topical 
as well as oral intake of healthy nutrients to keep it healthy. So you probably heard about gut skin health, which is kind of a different topic altogether, but uh, and the role of the pro-inflammatory bugs and the anti-inflammatory probiotics for healthy gut, healthy skin. So these things are important to consider. So you can feed your skin through two methods. One is you can have a good, healthy, nourishing diet, avoiding the nasties in the food, predominantly sugar, excessive salt and saturated fats, processed food, chemicals, preservatives, all those things. You can also feed your skin using topical creams, which technology enables it to penetrate deeper layers and deeper beta molecules and so on and so forth. Then you go on to the next level, which we call as slightly invasive, which is botulinum toxin and dermal fillers, which will give you very targeted, very specific uh, results based on your concerns. So typically, Botox or botulinum toxin is used for addressing wrinkles uh, that are a feature of the aging face and usually around the eye. So the frown lines, the forehead, the crow's feet are very effective for Botox and 80 to 85% of the Botox treatments get done there. Anything south of the eyes, that is the mid-face, the cheek, the nasolabial folds, the jowls, the chin, all those are volume loss related aging issues where you need fillers. So usually what happens is when you start seeing aging features around 30, 35, 40, you start treating people as required with Botox and fillers, usually a combination of both. And as you get older, you then start seeing the theory of descent. You start seeing loose skin. Eyelids are the first point of port of call and droopy eyelids, exercise skin, droopy eyebrows, eye bags, dark circles, you'll see them before you start seeing jowls and loose skin on your neck. So once you go past your Botox and fillers and lasers for skin care for minimally invasive treatment option, then you are looking into surgery. Somewhere in between these two, you can have multiple modalities of radio frequency devices where you used to tighten your skin. And there's high-focused ultrasound to tighten your skin, mainly the loose skin around your jawline. These are all very effective uh, to treat. There's also something called a dermal needling, which you do multiple traumatic punctures into your skin under local anesthetic that stimulate your collagen of your skin to give you a good-looking skin and increase the amount of collagen to plump up the skin, so to speak. So it's, these are all varying degrees of non-invasive to minimal invasive treatments then you go on to the top level of surgery where you need to have surgery for the upper eyelids, eye lift, lower eyelid, eye bag surgery. Then you go on to an older age group where you have to have a face and a neck lift as required. So it's a continuum that you start at the base of the pyramid and you work your way all the way up to the top of the pyramid, starting on one side from the age of about 20, 25, going up to, say, 65, 70, 80 years onwards. So the important part is you need to layer one treatment over the other to reap the benefits. So collectively and cumulatively, these will provide results. So you cannot avoid doing the basics and suddenly expect to see miracles when you do nothing for 50 years and suddenly expect to see a fantastic result when you do a facelift at 50 or 60 years of age. Thank you for clarifying that. There's a few really important points. So one is that if you're doing a, some kind of surgical intervention, it's really important that your skin looks great as well because if you have pigmentation, inflammation, telangiectasia, and then you have a facelift, it might help with the, the laxity of the skin. However, your skin is not going to look healthy, so it's important to layer them, which I really like that you touched on. But also regarding Botox and filler because people often just – when they think of injectables, they think Botox and filler is the same. So thank you for providing that clarification of which does what. 
In regards to fillers, there has been some coverage recently about fillers lasting much longer than we initially expected. So I think we were thinking that it was up to two years. Are you able to elaborate on this at all? Do you know sure. uh, much research? Yeah, look, I think it's, um, it's a well-known fact that there's different types of fillers made for different purposes. In other words, there's low-density fillers and high-density fillers for, you know, like the filler you use for the under-eye area would be different than what you use for your temple or for your jaw. So just in terms of the power of lifting, if I can use a non-technical term. Now, the important part is these fillers have been tested extensively in the lab under uniform conditions to then decide on, okay, fine, this is what their half-life is and this is how long they last, so on and so forth. But when it goes into a living being, the metabolism of the person is different. So if you had fillers and say, for example, I had fillers, now your body would react to the fillers differently than my body. And hence, there's a whole heap of variables that cannot be factored in. And that's what people have been noticing. Sometimes you've um, performed fillers. So what we usually say is it is guaranteed to last for 12 months or 18 months or 24 months, but you don't have to hold that as gospel truth. Sometimes it could last a bit longer than that. So my patients whom I do fillers for, they do not come religiously at 12 months to have a top-up. Unlike Botox, where you know that it lasts for around three months and after that it's worn off and then you need to have it uh, topped up to see the same result. Whereas fillers, it's variable. Some people come on time, some people come a bit later, some people come back and say, oh, I thought I needed a treatment, but you look at the face, very happy, don't need to do any, any more. So, and even if you do a top-up, the amount of volume you require may not be the same as your original volume. So you're right, they tend to last longer, but I don't think anyone has done any specific studies because it would be a massive undertaking where you have to factor in the sex of the patient, the age of the patient, the ethnic variation of the patient, what the patient does for activities of daily living, what you're exposed to environmentally. So there's a whole heap of variables that by the time you finish your study, it'll be quite exhausting. Yes, and I can imagine to actually have any significant data, you would need to have so many participants because there are so many variables. Now, are you able to explain what Botox resistance is and how we can avoid it? Look, Botox resistance is a term where people who've had Botox find that they get a very partial response to the Botox or a no response or a response that does not last for the entire duration of what it's supposed to last for three months. Now, this is called Botox resistance, also called Botox immunity, also called Botox response or non-responding. So it's not very common, but it is present in the general population. And the statistics say that it's about between 1% to 1.5% of people have some sort of quote-unquote resistance to Botox. In other words, they do not see the results after Botox. Technically, there are two groups of people. There are people whom we call as partial responders. In other words, they respond partially. So they have some effect or the effect does not last for the full three months. The second group of people are called as non-responders. In other words, you can inject Botox and they do not have any response. And typically, this is uh, caused by your body that develops antibodies 
in other words, antibodies are body's defense mechanism against foreign particles. And as soon as the foreign particle, which is in this case, Botox or botulinum toxin enters the body, your own native antibodies will go and cleave it and make it ineffective. So there's a tiny bit of protein that is used in the Botox molecule to provide some degree of stability. And as soon as these antibodies go and cleave protein, then the toxin is rendered inactive. So the toxin is pure. Toxin does not have any protein, but they use protein to stabilize the botulinum toxin. And uh, that's what uh, gets cleaved by these you know, antibodies. And as a result, you find that the Botox is no longer effective. It's a bit like someone has thrown a missile at you and you've done an anti-missile technology and shot on the missile mid-air and then it's rendered ineffective. That's what it is. Technically, it's very, very small as the incidence, very low incidence. But your response to Botox can depend on many things. It can depend on the injector, the injector's technique, the product used, whether the product is a legitimate product or a a counterfeit unlicensed product what is the storage method used to maintain the product because some of these toxins need a cold chain storage and if this has been broken along the way then you know, your product may be rendered ineffective in the bottle itself before it gets into your body so there's multiple variables so i think if you standardize the entire experience in other words you have the same product injector and if you have the same injector doing the same pattern of injecting for you, you know, technique is perfect, the right depth, the right dosing, then if you do not have a response, then you can say that truly you have a resistance slash immunity to Botox. But if you keep changing the variables, in other words, if you keep changing the product, keep changing the injector and the technique as well, and then if you do not have a response, then it could be due to the human factors as opposed to the Botox factors. That makes sense. And regarding surgical interventions to ageing concerns, how have the methods changed relating to outcomes and scarring? I mean, we've all seen, I'm sure, at some point, some photograph from the 80s or 90s where someone has had a facelift and the scarring is really significant, whether that was a botch surgery or whether the surgical techniques have changed over this time. I'm not sure, but are you able to elaborate on the changes? No, absolutely. So I think the best way to look at this, a surgery is an art which is based on science. So as the science progresses, the art becomes more fine. So when aesthetic surgery started many, many years ago, what was happening was it was used by a very small group of surgeons in very selected capitals in the world because the population were not expecting to have aesthetic surgery compared to what the acceptance is in 2020. So as a result, what happened, it was a smaller group of patients and a smaller group of surgeons performing surgery. So it was the number of brains who are thinking about aesthetic surgery were not that large. But with time, with society's acceptance of aesthetic surgery, the society's need for aesthetic surgery, it's almost become like mainstream now compared to, say, 100 years ago. There are a lot more surgeons performing aesthetic surgery all over the world. And couple that with advances in learning advances in learning anatomy, advances in learning techniques, and applying a very scientific methodology to aesthetic surgery. In other words, uh, smart surgeons would say, okay, fine, I did 10 of these operations. I've seen 10 fantastic results, so I'm happy to continue with that. On the other hand, you may get 10 patients doing, uh, sorry, 10 patients being done and say the results are not very good. Let's see how we can improve this. So this analytical, critical thinking has been applied to aesthetic surgery, and it is very much driven by research very much driven by science, very much driven by 
the techniques, obviously, but also new technology coming in to make the process more standardized, safer, more effective to give you a better result. So I think if you look at every single country in the world, the groups of plastic surgeons in those countries, all of them will have a professional society, a learning society, which focuses on aesthetic surgery. So in Australia, it's the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, of which I'm proud to be the president currently. And we have a similar society in virtually every country in the world. And we have a global society called ISAPS, the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. So this is like the, for want of a better word, the United Nations, so to speak. So these societies, their whole focus is on learning and educating and training constantly the surgeons who are their members. So we run conferences throughout the year. We run about uh, four conferences every year. The International Society runs a major conference once every two years, and all societies in the world have conferences as well. So if you look at the amount of learning that goes on now compared to what learning went on about, say, 50, 60, 100 years ago, the frequency has increased, the quality has increased, and the caliber of the speakers, the caliber of the research being presented is just mind-boggling. And not to mention the R&D being done by industry to advance this area of expertise. It's incredible. It's exciting Mm. times. And really raising the bar as well. I mean, it sounds like just given that there is so much resources and there are so much opportunities for further development and professional development and upskilling, that there really is no excuse to have poor techniques. Absolutely. So I think that's one thing that our society has done very well is every other meetings that we run, both in the non-surgical sector, which is non-surgical being toxins, fillers, lasers, skin care, radiofrequency devices, and the surgical meetings, they're almost like an annual upgrade. Like if you think of your iPhone 10 and once every six months you get a software upgrade to keep up, make you be functionally relevant and current with your technological updates, these meetings serve that purpose. They provide you an opportunity to annually go refresh, upgrade your knowledge, and validate what you're doing. So most of the times you'll say, oh, what I'm doing is current, what I'm doing is good, but ah, I learned two more tips, that's good. So that's kind of what these meetings serve a purpose. And the fact that these meetings have been successful and in high demand implies that there are people who are very, very keen to learn and thereby translate that learning into safe and effective practice for better results for patients. That's fantastic. Now, in a previous interview, we talked about lipedema and the lymphatic system. Yes. So how do you, I guess, having knowledge of this structure, the lymphatic system, does this change the way that you plan a treatment? Yes, you're very aware of the lymphatics in your face. Say, for example, you have, uh, let's talk about face primarily because we can talk about non-surgical as well as surgical stuff. So your face has got a lot of lymphatics in different layers, different spots. So if you're not careful during surgery and if you violate those lymphatics, you can essentially cause a significant amount of swelling post-surgery. And uh, that obviously will take a lot of time to settle. And the commonest or the worst area to offend is in and around the eyelids, because you probably hear stories about people who say, I had eyelid surgery, but the swelling took four months to settle down, or I'm still swollen. And all that is due to 
some interruption or interference with the normal lymphatic transport, which makes things a bit more harder. The other thing is you probably have seen a lot of overfilled faces with fillers and these overfilled faces with fillers and you look at this particular person whom you have probably seen 10 years ago and remembered her face or his face as a slim slender face and now all of a sudden the body is slim but the face is quite big and an overfilling of the face with fillers can cause some degree of lymphatic dysfunction and in addition to the actual volume that you put in for the fillers so your face actually plumps up even more so that's not uncommon to see in patients who have had an excessive amount of fillers more than normal and their face looks really big, plumpy and uh, full. Mm, yes, well, that makes a lot of sense. And then in regards to surgical interventions, have you seen cases where due to having surgery, they may have developed some form of lymphatic dysfunction and developed lymphedema of the face or other issues? We haven't seen any lymphedema of the face, and I don't think from reading the literature that it's been a very common occurrence, but a lot of these facial swellings are transient, and some techniques will make it last longer than some other techniques, and that's why when people say that, quote-unquote, he or she is a rough surgeon, and the face is swollen and bruised more than, say, normal, and you know why, because you have to have very good tissue handling skills, primarily to make sure all the delicate structures are taken care of. So it is very common to get uh, swelling post-surgery, and I do a lot of eyelid surgery, so I do get a lot of swelling around the eyelid surgery. And you can say that if you're younger, you will resolve faster than if you're older. There's no question about it. So there's an age-related decline of lymphatics as well that makes it harder for swelling to resolve. So, But all these swellings do resolve over time, and we take that a significant number of interventions required to control the swelling, starting from how you perform the surgery, what you look after postoperatively, what you can do, what you cannot do, activities, diet, food, the amount of salt you eat, all those things. And then, of course, you need to minimize the inflammation to make sure they're there. Lymphatic massage post-surgery can be very helpful because an expert in lymphatic massage will actually help get the swelling down, which ultimately translates to better healing. Yes, fantastic. And regarding managing patient expectations, this is something that all practitioners, therapists, clinicians have either struggled with or had a pretty hard lesson at some point in their career. How do you manage this? Look, that's a very good point because cosmetic surgery and aesthetic medicine, cosmetic medicine is all about managing patient expectations. And that is something people talk about mastering your technical skills. Yes, technical skills are critical and important, but patient management is even more important. So that's, that's kind of a good point that you raised. So how do I manage that? Look, we like to, like to keep things very realistic. In other words, if I've got a very simple rule that if I don't see the problem in the patient, when the patient is explaining the problem to me, then I cannot offer a solution. Okay, so it has to be because a lot of aesthetic surgery and aesthetic interventions, non-surgical, are to correct what has changed in your face. In other words, what has anatomically changed in your face. It could be a droopy eyebrow, it could be a droopy eyelid, excess eyelid skin, bulging fat, eye bags, dark circles, excess wrinkles, so on and so forth. And when the patient comes to talk to you, you and the patient says, I've got problem A, B and C, those problems have to be visualized by the practitioner because if you do not see them and blindly treat people, that's when you haven't identified what the expectation is and how to benchmark that. 
Okay, so it's very yeah. important to do that. There's no hard and fast rule. There's no courses to go. But I think what we, we usually say is to be very realistic and have a patient who has realistic expectations and just the good old-fashioned customer service you under-promise and over-deliver. Yes, of course. And I guess just being able to articulate it, that's a really interesting point as well. What do you think will change in the future of aesthetic surgical options? You mentioned that we've had huge advancements in technology recently, but has there been anything that you've seen recently in recent conferences that might just be on the verge of coming out that you think is going to completely change how things are done? Look, they're all small incremental improvements for existing benchmark procedures. So there's nothing that is revolutionary that has said, oh, wow, this is fantastic, right? But there are all upgrades on existing patterns of treatment or existing products. Say, for example, we mentioned about skincare. Now, skincare has gone from being a prescription-only skincare to almost like a bespoke formulation of sorts. And that is now beginning to get some traction. And I'm very certain that in the next four to five years, that will become the norm because people are willing to commit time and resources to get good results. I'd rather spend time, money and get the best to see some results as opposed to wasting six months of my time trying to fiddle with products that may not even get anywhere close. So those things are happening. The other things are happening is, uh, you know, thread lifts are also getting technologically driven. So there's a lot, what was the old thread lift was a very simplistic procedure, but now you've got different types of threads for different indications and getting a bit more bespoke, so to speak. Whether whether it is not an answer to surgery, but it is a complement to surgery because you've got a group of people who have a little bit of laxity, but not a great deal of laxity and surgery may just seem as a big undertaking for everybody. So this would be a nice little intervention. So I think the technology is basically trying to fill in gaps where people have needs, but the solutions seem too excessive. So these are the small things that are tweaking. So, yeah, and there's obviously, you know, every now and then you hear about new types of lasers coming in with new modalities, which much more effective range, a better safety profile, and constantly upgrading what they already have. So if you looked at any of the devices that are non-surgical, what you have seen in the last five years is a significant change to what you were used to seeing in the term before the five years. So you know, their safety profile, their efficacy, the ease of access, the ease of doing stuff is all, all very good. And hair transplant is another growing sector where high tech machine learning, robotics have all come into this place to make it a lot more user friendly for the patient. Very interesting. And yes, treatment stacking is something that I've noticed is happening a lot more, utilizing different modalities to get the best results for someone. Now, earlier, sorry, earlier on, you were talking about lifestyle and some dietary considerations when it comes to skin aging. So are there any recommendations to your patients when they come to see you, whether it be preparing for surgery or post-surgery for them to look their best? There is. I think I briefly mentioned to you about the gut-skin connection earlier. And mm. uh, we are hearing more and more about uh, the gut microbiome, the skin microbiome, and how each of them are related and so on and so forth. So there is no doubt in my mind that what you put into your stomach will show up on your skin. And I sometimes jokingly tell my patients, what you put into your mouth ends up in your brain on the way it shows up on your skin. <laughs> okay? So, so it, it is that axis, the gut-brain-skin axis. 
And it's important to factor that. And if you look at things that you have seen in day-to-day life, you you have observed this. You really haven't paid much attention to that. If somebody goes in to have kind of have a binge unhealthy diet using you know high processed food, um, carbohydrates, uh, lots of sugars, lots of alcohol, saturated fats, and other chemicals and preservatives. It's only if that person goes on a diet for about a week, it is pretty evident at the end of the week, the skin looks pretty average. And I don't know whether you have seen the movie, the Super Size Me movie. And uh, for example, if you did another repeat study of Super Size Me and looked at the skin quality every week on week, it will be quite atrocious in terms of what the diet can do to your skin. So what we recommend for patients is to say that Everyone has a certain degree of food intolerance, and that is age appropriate. Some people do not like gluten, some people don't like uh, sugars, some people cannot handle dairy, some people can't handle meat, all of those things. And that is all logic and scientific as well, because each of those food particles will influence what the quality of the gut microbiome becomes, because the vegetarian gut microbiome is different to someone who eats meat, someone who eats dairy. That's kind of what is important. And then subsequent to that, that tends to trigger off inflammatory responses because the gut microbiomes and the bugs in the gut become inflammatory. So when you have a larger proportion of gut microbiomes that are inflammatory, what happens is uh, you start seeing the inflammations in your skin, which is where you see it, and other parts of your body. So when people talk about an inflammatory diet, this is what they're alluding to. So my suggestion to people is avoid foods that are... um, frankly unhealthy. We all know that. It is primarily the sugar, the carbs, excessive salt, saturated fats, excessive amount of alcohol and uh, preservatives and chemicals. And eat eat clean, healthy food. Like, you know, the, the more focus on the nutritional value of food as opposed to the caloric value of food. That's important because fresh food is always better and, you know, as opposed to preserved food. And eat in moderation. Cons- consider vitamins and minerals as a important uh, source for your diet. So if you look up foods rich in vitamin A, you'll find that eight out of the 10 foods are something that you like and you love eating. And same thing, foods rich in vitamin B, vitamin C. So we recommend everyone who has surgery for the, at least for the first uh, the two weeks leading up to surgery to you know, eat well, eat clean and eat nutritiously. Yeah. Yes, I absolutely love that holistic approach. So rest assured, if anyone does go and pay Dr. Naveen a consultation, he will ensure that you are eating healthy and he's going to look at you as a whole person. Um, which, which is fantastic. Now, what do you think someone should look for when seeking an aesthetic surgery procedure, especially, say, when they're not in Sydney and they can't see you? What would be some things that you would tell your patients to look for? Look, I think the first thing is to, if you're planning to have surgery, it's um, logic and to look for a qualified surgeon. That's, that's the first rule. And the way you can look for a qualified surgeon is to make sure that the ARPRA, which is the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Agency, on its website has everyone's qualifications and tells you who is a specialist surgeon and who is not a specialist surgeon. The Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, ASAPS, on our website, we have a list of specialist plastic surgeons who are registered as specialist plastic surgeons by APRA performing uh, cosmetic surgery. So that would be a great resource for you to uh, look at because ASAP's memberships is across Australia and New Zealand and it not only metropolitan cities, also regional towns and smaller towns as well. And you can always find a specialist plastic surgeon who specializes in cosmetic surgery 
very close to you. If you have a look at the website, we have uh, our members uh, all over the place in the far north Queensland, Darwin, Perth, Hobart, uh, Sydney, of course, Melbourne and Adelaide and every major capital city and some of the regional cities as well. So you will find an extremely good kill set on the ASAP's website, which will satisfy your search. And if in doubt, you can always look at their individual capabilities if that matches your needs and you can go and see them. Great advice. So thank you so much for spending time with us this morning kind of debunking all these myths about skin aging and aesthetic surgery procedures. It was great to have you on the show again. Thank you, Marnie. Thank you so much for having the show. And thanks for having me too. Pleasure. Dr. Somia is always such a treasure chest of interesting information. I hope you learned some things today. I know I certainly did. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, a simple yet incredibly important observation of Dr. Somia's approach is treating holistically. He is not the type of surgeon that will perform a facelift without first also looking at the intrinsic inside and extrinsic external factors that may affect a patient's outcome, which is so refreshing and so needed uh, when we have this Instagram face, you know, going around and everyone starting to look the same. Number two, how interesting is it to learn that What really happens as we age, you know, volume loss due to collagen breakdown and also bone structural changes and then the skin laxity. And it's interesting to hear how depending on the age, a different modality will provide different benefits for that particular change that's occurring underneath what we can see from the surface of the skin. And number three, I admittedly have not had any injectables. However, I have heard countless stories of people say that their injectables either last longer with one person or don't have the desired effect with another. And I always wondered why that was. So we all need to keep in mind that our body metabolizes wrinkle reduction or filler different depending on ourselves, depending on the individual. So even if you and your bestie would have the same amount in the same place by the same practitioner, the result may vary greatly. But also, it's not all about the product. While yes, it is very, very important that the product is not counterfeit, it's also greatly important for the experience of the practitioner and the artistic ability of the practitioner as well. It's not just enough to have a qualification to be able to inject. You need to have experience um, not only to avoid adverse outcomes, but also to get the best results. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Derm Health Co podcast. I'd love to know your three deeper than skin insights. So screenshot your phone, while you're listening to the podcast and tag us in your social media at dermhealth.co. I look forward to bringing you another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. Until next week, stay skin-powered. If you're enjoying the Heal Thy Skin podcast and you know someone that may have a skin condition, skin interest or experienced a skin trauma, then share the podcast with them. It may help them more than you realize.